Missouri's 2nd Congressional District has been in Republican hands for a generation. But President Donald Trump's alienation of white suburban voters has made the district more competitive in recent years. And Democratic State Senator Jill Shoup believes she can bring the St. Louis, St. Charles and Jefferson County-based district into the blue column. I just could not let Ann Wagner's votes and behavior go unchecked. And I could not sit on the sidelines anymore. And that's why I've decided to get into the race and I'm in it full, 100 percent, ready to go and ready to go and work on the half, behalf of the people uh, in the second congressional district. On this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and I discussed the impending second district race. We also talked with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Kurt Erickson about the state's Medicaid waiver wait list. And we discussed the turmoil within Missouri's public defender system with the Kansas City Star's Katie Moore. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and this is our Friday News Roundup show. First off, we're going to talk to Kurt Erickson of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Kurt is the Jefferson City reporter for the paper. He wrote a story last month about Medicaid waivers and people with developmental disabilities that we're going to chat to him about. Welcome, Kurt. Good to be here. Can you briefly explain what the issue is right right now in Missouri and what you covered in the article? It's pretty heartbreaking. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that happens when uh, the, the state goes about putting together its budget and uh, there's not enough money to sufficiently fund everything. Uh, in this case, uh, it affects people with developmental disabilities, everyone from those who are, are barely able to function um, to pretty high-functioning developmentally disabled folks. And what the state does is they uh, try to get them into independent living situations, but they need help, and that help costs money. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the help is uh, grossly underpaid, and uh, especially with the minimum wage rising, they're having a hard time finding these private contractors to take care of these developmentally disabled folks. And um, so this year they tried to, the, the state lawmakers during the budget, tried to allocate more money to give the providers raises and so that it would stop the high turnover rate and they could hire more you know better people uh but in doing that they, and they knew this was going to happen um the money went to uh serve the existing clients um and there's not been enough money they didn't allocate enough money to uh get everybody who's coming into the system served Therefore, uh, there's a waiting list of as many as 1,300 people who's, who will need these services. 
So they've had this wait list. And uh, what we reported on was that there were about 80 people uh, on this waiting list waiting for services and basically being in limbo. And their, and their, their caregivers, mostly their parents uh, or siblings, are in limbo waiting to see if the state can find some money or fix the situation. There are people who, to live independently, have usually what's called a Medicaid waiver uh, that yeah. provides like assistance to them. So, for example, uh, if you have someone in your family who is developmentally disabled but able to work and stuff, that, that person might come in and help them make sure that they're eating appropriate meals or help them get dressed or help them get to the bus stop on time or that type of, you know, that type of activity. Um, and yeah, and yeah. the state lawmakers made a calculation from what I understand from what you're saying, Kurt, that those people who provide that assistance needed to be paid more. But the trade-off for that was that there were going to be people who should have those services who are going to have to stay on a wait list because there wasn't enough money to cover both giving the services to more people, the people on the wait list, and paying people more, right, basically? And, yeah, right, exactly. An extra wrinkle in that is that the federal government also believes that the way the, the rate system is set up in Missouri, it needs to be standardized, uh, which means that some of the people who were brought into the system a long time ago, uh, their providers are getting paid less than what new providers are receiving. The feds say, hey, you need to just make this all equal. And the, and this, the state doesn't disagree with that, except it's going to cost about $80 million. So they're trying to phase that in, and um, but they, they're not going to be able to do it all at once. So maybe phase it in over four years or something like that. I want to also clarify, because I think that this can be confusing. When people hear about Medicaid anything, they tend to think about Medicaid expansion. And these people are not, right. would, would not be, these types of services are not covered by people in the Medicaid expansion program. This is people who are in a different type of Medicaid program who uh, the federal government and the state government helps care uh, for them in extra ways because they need additional help. So this is not something that would go away if we just expanded Medicaid. This would be an issue that would still exist, right? Correct. Yeah, correct. The The people on the waiting list are still uh, receiving some services. Uh, however, it's not what, what, you know, what they want, what, what the state wants them to receive. For example, like, some of the waiting list folks are in hospitals um, because they need, you know, they, they need constant treatment. Uh, what the state wants to do is get them out of the more expensive hospital setting and into a home setting and um, have a caregiver take care of them. And, and the whole name of the game is independence, uh, trying to give uh, these people independence rather than having them stuck in a hospital bed doing nothing. Do you think there's going to be do anything done in the upcoming session to address this wait list? They're going to try. Um, they, the, the Department of um, Social Services, or Department of Mental Health, excuse me, has asked for additional money uh, to, to close off the wait list. 
and to begin standardizing the rates as the feds want them to. Um, so it's going to be just a matter of is there a will by members of the legislature and Governor Parson to uh, to add this money in? And I think um, you know I, I think they're going to try, but again, it's like we're still talking. The budget doesn't go into effect until July. 2020, the new budget. So we're kind of stuck with this situation for, you know, the next half a year, basically. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Kurt. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. Well, it's great to have you here. And now my co-host Jason Rosenbaum has joined me so we can talk about the second Missouri congressional district race. Hey, Julie, I was in the news wilderness doing another story during the first (laughs) segment, but, but now I'm back to talk about this very, very exciting race. Jason, tell us what new development happened in this the race this week. State Senator Jill Shoup, who's a Democrat from Creve Corps, announced that she will be running for the 2nd Congressional District against Republican Ann Wagner. This is a big deal for a lot of reasons. The 2nd Congressional District was drawn in 2011 to be a Republican district. It, it still is, I would argue, a Republican-leaning district, but it's just become more competitive as white suburban voters have gravitated away from Republicans nationally. Um, She'll be running against a very tough opponent in Ann Wagner. I don't want to say that Ann Wagner is doomed or doesn't have a chance. She is also a very formidable competitor. I think that's the reason people like me are so excited. This is like a, a gold star heavyweight bout between two really good candidates. For those of us who are new, can you explain where the district, what it encompasses? It includes parts of St. Louis County, especially South, Central, and Western St. Louis County, and a little part of North County, too, parts of St. Charles County, and a very small piece of Jefferson County. And so the reason why I was always a little skeptical in 2018 that this district was going to be in play is Western St. Louis County, St. Charles County, and Jefferson County are still Republican strongholds, even post-Trump. But there have been other parts, especially in St. Louis County, that were traditionally Republican that, as I mentioned before, are becoming more Democratic. And Court Van Ostren, even though he did not have third party support from political parties, came within about 15,000 votes of beating Wagner, which is why I think this time around, groups like the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee are likely to invest money and resources to help people like Shoup, which is very, very important for this race to be competitive for Democrats. Why don't you go into a bit of detail about why it's important that an organization like the DCCC would be willing to invest in this race, which it it looks like they probably will, correct? Yes. I think the reason it's important is if you look at other congressional races where challengers are are going up against incumbents, if you do not have the support of the DCCC or the NRCC, nine times out of ten you lose because you're not going to be able to attract the fundraising, the excitement, and also get that very important outside money that's going to help you. I wish this weren't the case. I wish I could say to every congressional candidate, you have a chance of winning, but you don't. Like, if you don't have this support and you're a challenger, nine times out of ten you're going to lose. Right. You're you're a challenger not in a primary, because we've seen, in fact, AOC is an example. Yes. We've seen some some challengers in primaries knock off 
people who those organizations were supporting. But I agree with you. In a general election... Yeah, even Court Van Osteren, who came very close, did not have that third-party support. There are pluses and minuses to it. Like, I don't. I think your messaging has to be a little bit more comported to what the national parties want. But I think that certainly would have been helpful. Yeah, I think it's an indication. If an organization like the DCCC is involved, it's an indication that someone over there has done some analysis or research to think that Ann Wagner is vulnerable. Whether she will actually be beaten or not, who knows? Yeah, and I think that's an important point, but continue. Yeah, so it means that they think that there is some chance that they're going to win this race because there's a lot of places that need money. And if they're betting on a challenger, not just trying to protect an incumbent, and they'll have some incumbents they have to protect. I will just say to Democrats who are understandably excited about this development, this is not going to be a slam dunk race, even for a very good challenger like Shoup. Not only because the district is still Republican leaning in many respects, but Ann Wagner has significantly more money. She has almost $2.2 million in the bank. And Shoup is going to have to start from zero because she cannot take that state money and transfer it to federal. And the other thing that I think it needs to be mentioned, too, is even though Wagner certainly has detractors among Democrats in the 2nd District, there is no question that she is a formidable and skilled campaigner with experience in local, state, and national Republican politics. I, I've seen it in action. I've seen her rev up crowds. She can be very inspiring to like the rank-and-file Republican people that are, are trying to help her. So, But I also expect that type of enthusiasm to be on the Democratic side. And the other thing that I think is going to be helpful for Democrats from that 2018 race is because you had a competitive contest, Court Van Osteren already has a lot of data about the voters Jill Shoup is going to need to get to. Again, that may seem like an inside baseball point, but before there was basically nothing in that district that could be provided to a, a viable Democratic challenger. So Court Van Osteren, even though he lost, provided really good groundwork for Shoup to potentially succeed. But as I said before, I don't want to get like Democratic people's hopes up that it's a sure thing. Like, this is going to be a challenging race for a shoot, for sure. I would also say to the extent that white suburban women are upset with Trump, which is, I think, this narrative that's going around the country right now, you know, this will be a race between two white suburban women, which might um, affect how angry those supposedly, you know, how angry the white suburban women are going to be that might come out and vote in this type of election. And these are two candidates with very different philosophies on issues, which I'm sure is going to be pointed out a lot. Like, Ann Wagner is strongly opposed to abortion rights, and she has was at actually an a anti-abortion rights rally earlier this year. Senator Shoup is a, a proponent of abortion rights. And I'm sure there'll also be differences on, on health care, about the future of the Affordable Care Act, on tax cuts, on President Trump and how he's navigating through this impeachment situation. It's a very like pure race between two very different philosophical candidates. And in some ways, it makes it easy for reporters to like explain to voters what they're voting on. Um, and I'm sure it also makes it easier for the respective campaigns to attack each other because they both have long voting records. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Katie Moore of the Kansas City Star about a reporting series she did on Missouri public defenders.
And we're back with Katie Moore from the Kansas City Star. She's here to talk to us about a seven-part series that the Star did on public defenders in Missouri. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. First off, can you explain basically what is the issue with public defenders in Missouri? Why did you all devote so many resources to this topic? Well, actually, I started writing a story kind of as a daily story, and we try to take a step back from that and realize you know, this is a well-known problem. Um, how can we look at this so it's not just something, you know, in a daily story that kind of, you know, is, is out there and then gets, you know, you move on from it. So we took um, six months to really kind of dig in, see how this issue was playing out throughout the state and try to find people was impacting specifically defendants. With what you found, I mean, you all have many, many examples throughout the series of the ways in which um, the public defender system wasn't working for clients, kind of um, examples of cases where things went awry, everything from people sitting in jail for literally years uh, before charges were dropped and they were dismissed. So just to be clear, people sitting in jail who were never even charged with a crime, uh, let alone convicted of one. Um, to to just other instances where people didn't have any communication with their public defender. Did you feel like what you found was what you expected? Was it worse than what you expected? When we started the project, we had known about a woman in Clay County who had been in jail for four years. And when she goes to trial next year in April, she'll have been there more than five years. Um, And so I think that is an outlier case, but we definitely dug up other stories where people had been in jail for, you know, two years, which is still an incredibly long time to be sitting there waiting for your case to play out. And, um, you know, in those cases, sometimes the charges were dropped and there's pretty much no recourse for for them. One particular thing that you looked at was the very heavy caseloads that many of these public defenders have. Yeah, so we looked at um, some of the annual reports from the public defender system, and you can just see this rise through the 90s of the number of cases. And it's attributed to kind of the war on drugs and tough on crime policies. And when that was happening, there wasn't a lot of additional funding. So the attorneys got more and more caseloads, and it became, at a certain point, unconstitutional because they weren't able to provide effective counsel. You know, I recall back in 2009, there was legislation that passed through both chambers of the Missouri General Assembly that would have allowed the director of the public defender's office to contract cases to private counsel. And if money wasn't present, the director would inform courts that a public defender is unavailable and a person eligible for services would be put on a waiting list. And that was kind of a way to deal with the aforementioned, like, burgeoning caseload situation. Now, at the behest of St. Louis prosecutors, like then St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough and then Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce, that bill was vetoed and never overridden. And that, I think, was the last time there was a major public policy push in the arena of trying to limit caseloads for, for public defenders. In your reporting, did you get any sense that people in the legislature, the legal community, the public defender's office wanted some sort of definitive action from from state policymakers to relieve a lot of the pressures that you detailed? Um, I think the public defenders would love that. Um, and there is actually a lawsuit against the against the Missouri public defender system 
filed by the ACLU in 2017. And there's a proposed settlement that would put um, these caseload caps into place. But right now it's hung up in appeals court with the Missouri State Attorney Generals. So it's unclear if that settlement is going to go through. And I think that there's this may seem like an opaque point, but one of the big issues with public defenders taking up so many cases is there are sort of legal parameters about how many cases lawyers can take, basically. That's what I recall from 2009. Did Mm -hmm. you get a sense from your reporting that that was still a concern of many public defenders, that they're putting their law licenses at risk by being in this situation? Yeah, definitely. There was a case a couple years ago where a public defender, I believe in Columbia, um, there had been a complaint filed against him. And the Supreme Court came down and gave him or disciplined him. And so part of his argument was, well, I have too many cases. I can't handle this many cases. And that's why I was missing deadlines. And the Supreme Court said, it doesn't matter. You have to take the cases. And so that kind of puts public defenders in this predicament of, okay, I have to take cases, but I also have to represent my clients ethically in a way that follow the rules. Um, so how do we go about this? And they're just kind of stuck in this uh, catch-22. Yeah, I would also say it's mentioned in your story, you know, judges who think that the public defenders are too overwhelmed to represent clients correctly can appoint a lawyer that's just a member of the bar to represent yes. clients. Now, um, that's not a great situation. You could have someone who does like real estate law suddenly working on a criminal case and that could open you to a lawsuit because that person, while maybe an excellent lawyer, isn't necessarily uh, well suited to represent someone. Or you could have a scenario where an attorney is forced to take up a case. They're not super happy about it. And even though that they're ethically bound to do the best they can, they just may not because they're they would rather be doing something else. in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, where judges are elected, so that makes this a very different situation. Um, there are some judges that are starting to just appoint people from the bar, I think, to put pressure on, frankly, legislators who are members of the attorney community to, um, to, to do something about this. That d- seems pretty rare, Katie, in mm-hmm. Missouri, that, that a judge is taking that extreme step. It's a pretty extreme step. Yeah, we heard of very few uh, cases where private attorneys were being um, appointed. It did happen in Boone County. And I imagine that part of the reason it's not happening is because there's funding issues. And in Boone County, the the attorneys that were being appointed were, were basically doing it pro bono. So yeah. that, that didn't last very long because I don't think they were very happy about having to take on work without getting paid, which is understandable. Yeah. And the other issue, too, is in some rural counties, there just may not be that many attorneys living there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know they try to um, kind of do more attorney appointed cases in some more serious cases. And that wasn't that didn't really work out because there just wasn't um, there just wasn't the legal knowledge there to, you know, like defend a capital case. I am curious, what do people think might be a practical, I don't want to say solution, but something that could make this situation better? What do they want to see happen? I think there's kind of two streams of thought when it comes to solutions. One, of course, is just funding. They need more money. They need more attorneys. 
to take these cases. And then the second kind of avenue is looking at the criminal justice system as a whole and seeing, okay, well, are there too many cases that are being charged? Um, I know some prosecutors have been agreeable in terms of diverting custody non-payment cases through civil court and not through the criminal court. So that has relieved public defenders caseloads in certain areas. Yes. In um, fact, that's happening in St. Louis County mm-hmm. with Wesley Bell. Yeah. Yeah. So there are ways to decrease the caseloads by not having those cases in the first place. Do you know, is it is the question of money just, um, you know, there's a lot of needs and not enough money to go around, or are there specific concerns about giving money to public defenders? Some of the legislators we talked to said, yes, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different prior, uh, budget priorities. And so funding public defenders isn't going to be as popular as, you know, sending money for schools or for health care. Um, and then some of the public defenders that we talked to believe that, you know, it's not made a priority because people who are poor and who have been accused of crimes, they don't really have a voice. I think one public defender put it as they don't have a lobby. Okay, well, we're reaching the end of our time. Katie, I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. You can read Katie's stories uh, on the Kansas City Star's website. The editorial board also wrote a couple pieces about public defenders. They were published last month. Um, Anything else you want to share with us, Katie? Oh, where can we find you on the World Wide Web? So um, I am at Katie underscore reports on Twitter. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. And now we've come to our final segment, something we call Show Me Something. Uh, Jason and I this week are going to talk about walk-up music for candidates. For people who don't know what this is, I suspect politically speaking listeners know what walk-up music is. I would guess so. (laughs) It's the music that candidates tend to walk out on stage to at rallies and sometimes exit. You know, famously, Bill Clinton... Uh, did this to a lot of Fleetwood Mac music. Yes, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Right. A song that I'm personally not that fond of. At the- <laughs> it's, not a, it's not as good as The Chain. Every, uh, every iteration of The Chain is amazing. But The Chain is about, like, heartbreak and a breakup. So it's not really appropriate for a political rally. So since we've had dozens and dozens of Democrats running for president, there's actually been a lot of coverage of the walkout music for the various candidates and what it means, uh, how it sort of reflects the candidate. For example, I believe Bernie Sanders' walkout music at least a few months ago was Powered to the People. Kamala Harris's walkout music a few months ago, she's no longer in the race, was a Mary J. Blige song. So I want to ask you, Jason, if you were going to be a political candidate, what would your walkout music be? You know, I've thought about this for a while because I'm a professional wrestling fan and often wrestlers come out to really great songs. So (laughs) I I would be I was initially inclined to pick like a a song like Chris Jericho's theme music, Break the Walls Down. It really gets me pumped. Um, I am also a big fan of Nina Cherry's Buffalo Stance. Uh, but if I had to pick a song that I feel like defines me and also I feel is the best song of the 2010s, since we're kind of getting up there, 
I would pick the song Turnpike Divides by Thursday. It, it, it It's not only like a really like energizing song, but it also speaks to a longing to go to your, your hometown and to go home. And I, I think that a lot of people who are run for office are, are simply trying to create a better place for their constituents. And I, I think that even though the song has some dark overtones, um, that would be what I would pick. Okay, well, why don't we hear a little bit of that before we come back and talk about my favorite walkout music. So my pick for walkout music was actually used by a candidate. It was used by the current Michigan governor uh, when she was running for office. Um, And it is a Lizzo song called called Good As Hell. It's not the one off, it's not off her recent album, which uh, has blown her up into a megastar. It's off an album previous to that when she was still a star, but not, not quite the star she is now. And uh, it it would be easier to play than some of her recent music because a lot of her recent music is profane. Well, not the kids' bop version of Truth Hurts, where <laughs> the like thirteen year old kids say, "I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm a hundred percent that kid," and talks about being a good friend, non-committal, which makes no sense if you understand like the context but sorry i didn't mean to hijack you <laughs> no i mean i think it's it the song uh we'll hear a clip of it in a little bit the song is basically like uh about a woman getting ready to go out for a night on the town not to sound like an old but that's <laughs> that's what it's about um and it's about like having your nails done and your hair done and uh i i love it i play it before i go out sometimes before I go to work in the morning. I do my hair talk, check my nails. Baby, how you All right. Well, I'll be interested in 2020 to see what candidates are using for walk-up music in Missouri. I, I will, too. And if it's the president, it'll probably be Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding by Elton John, which makes no sense. That song's about death. Why is it used in political rallies? Trump, you have a lot to answer for. It's not It's not that uplifting for sure. I don't remember what George Bush, George W. Bush's walk-up music was. I don't was. either, although I do remember they played uh, Proud to be an American a lot by Lee Greenwood. Yeah, I probably, think you're right. Probably after 9-11. Um, and there was also Toby Keith's. Uh, song about you know putting a boot in your ass it's american way was popular (laughs) yeah yeah you're right that's probably uh correct all right well we've come to the end of the show we'd like to thank our editor fred ehrlich our news director shula newman and our sound engineer john larson jason where can people find you on twitter at j rosenbaum and you can find me at js o'donohue thanks for listening girl need to kick off your shoes gotta take a deep breath time to focus all the big fights, long nights that you've been through I got a bottle of tequila I've been saving for you Boss up and change your life